You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Monday, January the 17th. Cold, bright, gorgeous, frosty morning here in TW11 as we build towards that clash between Energumen and Shishkin in the Clarence House chase at Ascot. At the five-day entry stage, both trainers of these horses, Nicky Henderson and Willie Mullins, are intent on running their star two milers against one another, which is excellent news. And as we seek to increase the competitiveness of this time of year, let's hail the Lingfield Winter Million, which is due to take place this weekend, Friday and Sunday, for the jump racing portion of that fixture. But for how long? Will this be at Lingfield Park? Because rumours abound that even if this is a, a great and resounding success, it could move not too far away and certainly very close to Ascot to Windsor Racecourse, where there was last jumping back in 2006 when Ascot was under redevelopment, but was really last used as a full-time jumps course back in 2002. So after a 20-year hiatus, could jump racing be back at the Royal Berkshire track? And indeed, if the Winter Million goes back to Windsor or goes to Windsor, could this, with Ascot on Saturday, form part of a, an East Berkshire Racing Festival of Thoughts? I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, I've been speaking to Martin Crudus, the boss of ARC, the arena racing company, and he said to me that the focus at the moment was very much, as you'd understand, on Lingfield this weekend. And he says this is not a flash in the pan. The Winter Million is here to stay. This is an innovation that ARC are getting behind. They're hoping to increase prize money year on year, really to draw the best horses in Great Britain and potentially Ireland to race against one another at this point in the season. I asked him whether the rumours about this moving to Windsor had foundation. Now, he didn't confirm that, but he also didn't deny it. And he said, jump racing at Windsor is certainly under consideration, as you'd expect from any group that seeks to innovate. And he cited this million and the Racing League as other recent examples of innovation that they've got behind. So I asked David Yates, who will have had, I'm sure, fond memories of racing at Windsor over jumps in his youth. Um, is this a goer? I think it's a go for several reasons. The first is that um, ARC are savvy enough to know that jump racing return to win, that its return to wins would be a very good PR exercise for them. Um, they will know that they are perceived in the racing community as being essentially pretty hard-headed business people uh, whose first priority is their shareholders and racing sits behind that in the pecking order and they will realize that so many of us remember uh, jump racing at Windsor the New Year's Day hurdle at Windsor uh, with great affection and so they will know that this is a, a public relations bonus on their part and that the racing community will uh, receive it very positively. I, I can't think of one person that I know uh, who loves horse racing who would not welcome this. Um, in terms of it being a goer, I, I think it is uh, ARC's next project. Now, they've launched the Winter Million, of course, uh, of which more in a moment. They did that in October. Uh, there is also, of course, 
the fact that they're moving the All Weather Championships finals to Newcastle, that should pretty much look after itself over the next couple of months, I would have thought. But I imagine that that will be their next project, that um, when when the decks have been cleared financially um, after the Winter Million, etc., um, I think that the the next thing on their to-do list will be to... Uh, look into bringing bringing um, jump racing back to Windsor. As I say, for whatever reasons they're doing it, whether it's a cynical PR exercise or whether whether uh, Martin Crudus has a special uh, Windsor has a special place in his heart, I don't really care because I'd love to see it back there. And so would one of the highest profile national hunt trainers in Britain, who trained a barrel load of winners at Windsor in its previous incarnation. This is what Nicky Henderson had to say about the idea. I mean, the great thing about it, surprise, I think. Everybody, well, if it is by the river, it, it was always decent ground. It was somewhere you could go to in the winter when everywhere was wet. Windsor would be, you know, one of those places you'd, it would always be quite considerably better than anywhere else. So the... Uh, you know, yeah, no, it, it always was nice ground. Well, not always. It could get soft, obviously, but it would never, it would never get... Um, Generally, it was better than most places. So, is it be, be the sort of place? Would you run good horses there? So, you know, if they, yes, if they would, yeah. th- theoretically, they created, yeah. a, you know, a two and a half mile chase. You'd, you'd, you'd run it. You'd happily run a graded horse there. Yes, you would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a figure it's a bit tight that table bend, but um, you know, by and large, it was it was a good track and it had some good races there, and it attracted plenty of runners. Um, it's very handy for us. <laughs> um, no, I'm totally in favour. And w- would you be up for a, a sort of festival around the Ascot race this weekend? So if you went, if say, for example, you went Windsor, Ascot, Windsor, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, do you think you could create a bit of razzmatazz around that? I do, actually, yeah. I think Windsor's a popular track, too. You know, people go there, don't they? It's a, it, it's a, it's a good venue. It's a good venue for London, and it's a good venue. I don't know, it just seems to... Obviously, it, it always attracts good crowds on Mondays for obvious reasons, the Monday evenings. Um, but no reason why. It, you know, I think it would be popular as a national hunt track, too. Uh, I, I can't let you go. Um, they, they've done the five days for, for Clarence House at the weekend. Uh, everything okay with Shishkin, you said, on Saturday. I don't suppose anything's changed since Saturday. And Egumen has been... Um, confirmed at, at this stage. Uh, how how are you feeling about it all at the moment? Um, I'm kind of afraid that Willie that he probably ought to stay at home um, and keep warm. But um, listen, it's going to be we've got you know like always. I, mean, we, I want to go here rather than waste. And um, listen, it's going to be a fascinating race. I think Kim Bailey's coming, isn't he? Yep, he's um, coming for last year's winner. Yep. Um, so it will be, <laughs> be a cracker, won't it? I hope. Yeah, it's unsurprising, Dave Yates, that Nicky Henderson would be enthusiastic about uh, jump racing returning to Windsor because, as he put it, you used to get really nice ground there, which, much as I really do love Lingfield as a jumping venue, you very rarely get at Lingfield. So you might get a slightly higher calibre of horse, even though the track's a bit eccentric? Yeah, well, that's the that's the interesting thing, isn't it, with regards to the Winter Million. And when 
the meeting was launched in October in the Caledonia Club. Once I got over the shock of not being allowed in with a cravat, um, the, 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 the first thing one noticed was, well, Lingfield, the middle of January, heavy ground. You know, it, it's, it's not, uh, for, for, for all that uh, Lingfield is, a, is genuinely a lovely race course, it's not one of the places that in mid-January you would think that the top trainers would want to send their horses. Interestingly, Nicky Henderson was at that launch um, at the Caledonia Club and we asked him, you know, Nicky, you you don't seem to, it, Lingfield doesn't seem to be top of your, your race course list when it comes to sending your good horses. And, you know, he, he, he said that, that this would be a uh, an innovation would, that would encourage all trainers to send their good horses there. But obviously, as you say, he's um, he, he had a, a a really good record with some good horses at Windsor. Uh, he sent them there, it, it, believing that the ground was decent and that if jump racing were to go back there, then that obviously gives them the the chance of of switching uh, the fixture to better ground when we all know that it's going to be heavy at Lingfield in the middle of Jan. I'll come back to Lingfield in a minute and the, the the prospects of success this weekend. But if if for if for argument's sake, and and there's a fair bit of water to flow under the bridge between now and then, if for argument's sake, jump racing did return to Windsor and they did decide to go Friday Sunday either side of the the Clarence House and make a sort of Berkshire racing festival, do you think that that is something that would fly commercially? I think it's very hard to say. Um, the w- one of the issues that well, in my opinion, uh, dogs the uh, jump racing season, and in other people's uh, opinion, is the very making of it is the preeminence of Cheltenham, isn't it? And so, I, I think that whatever you do with regard to trying to beef up uh, the the middle of the jump season or even the the jump season leading into Cheltenham, I think that you're always going to um, have the odd sleepless night about. Uh, about good horses clashing with each other, however much prize money you put up and and whatever you do with the meeting. And a, a Royal Berkshire uh, winter racing festival obviously sounds a very attractive idea. When, when the Dublin Racing Festival was launched in 2018, immediately in Britain, there were, there were rumblings among the jump racing community to say, well, why don't we have something like that? And... Uh, initially, there were the thoughts of beefing up the King George fixture. Um, and then, of course, interesting, the, 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 the Winter Million was launched amid two other big news items that uh, October morning. One of them was the um, the moving of the All-Weather Championship finals from Lingfield to Newcastle. And the second and the most noteworthy thing was the row that was going on at the time between, essentially between Martin Crudders and Rafe Beckett, um, ARC and the, the, the National Trainers Federation. So I, I, I'm still... Let, I, I'm still not convinced that something like that will fly in the in the way that we imagine it. Because what you're talking about, Nick, is essentially a, a proper rival to the Dublin Racing Festival, but on this side of the Irish Sea, essentially, aren't you? Yeah, an equivalent, maybe, rather than a rival or a or or, or some sort of some sort of organised organised event that is more than the sum of its parts. I suppose that's the key. So what they've got is they have got Sky Sports across three days, ITV across three days in a similar region. I can see you can see the way the thinking's going here. Now, 
we need to tie that in with the concepts that we've been, been exploring over the last week, which is to what extent does this this concept of this winter million start detracting from other events around it? And Martin Crudus would say, well, I don't mind being a disruptor. I will put prize money on for an event like this. People will come. If it forces Kempton and Warwick to up their prize money um, last week, then so much the better. Everyone's a winner. But quite understandably, as has been explored on this podcast and elsewhere, people then worry about you know, thinning out the product and dilution of the product at the top end. Well, and we're only, well, it, it was the week before last, wasn't it, that the uh, the Quality Jump Racing Review Group uh, went public with its recommendations. They included um, limiting the opportunities uh, for the top horses to clash and uh, also the idea of changing conditions races uh, to handicaps it's it's interesting to think about the development of a uh, an equivalent uh, to the Dublin Racing du- Dublin Racing Festival in the context of those recommendations, isn't it? That the the card on Friday uh, for Lingfield is has got some competitive handicaps. It's got uh, the Winter Million Hurdle. The top rated horse there is on the blind side, who is. 148 but was was pulled up in the Relkeel hurdle at Cheltenham on New Year's Day and so how that develops will be interesting with regard to the quality jump racing review group because you know what that uh, what that group expressly does not want is more graded opportunities for the good horses to avoid each other Right, Dave, I wonder if Shishkin will ever run at, at Windsor. Anyway, uh, there wasn't an awful lot to ask Nicky Henderson about him having spoken on Saturday. He said the horse was flying and, and clearly they want to turn up at, at the Clarence House this weekend. And that's the, the stated intention of the Mullins team with an Ergy men as, as well. Um, it, what, a, what a clash to savour. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it certainly is. I, I mean, I'm sure I wasn't the only one ringing Nicky Henderson with a, a, a little tincture of... Uh, trepidation on Saturday morning, just in case he said, "Well, look, you know, in we, we always we always said we we weren't certain to go, and we think that maybe the game spirit is the is the is the preferable route." And he was positively buzzing uh, on Saturday morning. There was the he told us about nine furlong a nine furlong workout through the fog uh, that Nico de Boinville was thrilled, and that uh, they were bang on uh, with. Return uh, with uh, regard to the Clarence House chase. The interesting thing, and I know that Energumen is currently on course uh, for the Clarence House chase. Can I just mention the weather forecast? As far as uh, the weather goes, there is no rain forecast between now and Saturday. Temperatures not particularly high, as you might imagine. According to, I'm looking at the the, the BBC. Uh, weather site and the, the the greatest likelihood of rain is at 11 o'clock on Wednesday when according to this there is a 17% chance of rain. And does that alter your view on who is the likelier winner? Do you believe that that makes Shishkin a much more likely winner? Yeah I think it probably does. Um, I must admit I, I when it comes to uh, tipping on the race on, on Saturday, I, I would go with Shishkin. I, I was really uh, after all the after all the the build up, if that's not the wrong phrase, which it almost certainly is, of of the horse missing uh, Sandown and the Tingle Creek Chase, and I, I think we were all 
again, probably I, I felt that I was watching the Desert Orchid chase at Kempton on the 27th of December, just through the, the gaps in my fingers, really, in case that Shishkin would suffer a first uh, career defeat over fences. And he was really impressive, wasn't he? Um, you know, you could, there was that picture of uh, Nicky Henson shaking with delight uh, during the the closing stages of that race, and 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 basically that that mirrored how we all felt. Uh, Shishkin looks a, a a champion chaser in embryo, and what he did at Kempton was hugely encouraging. And I you know for for what it's worth, and probably uh, not an awful lot, I I, I would I would favour him over Energumen. I think probably uh, drying ground or no. And Dave, what about the two-star novices from Punchestown yesterday? The chaser, Bob Ollinger, looked really, really assured, much more assured. And Dysart Dynamo, just dominant in the novice hurdle and another potential star in that supreme novices hurdle. Yeah, well, I was impressed by both. I mean, I think that the uh, the pertinent point with Bob Ollinger is that I was a little bit underwhelmed by him at Gorham Park in November. Um, I, I, I thought that his, his jumping that there was certainly the scope to apply a bit of polish uh, to it. Rachel Blackmore, of course, that afternoon was riding Aputar at Haydock Park, and she obviously rode the horse on uh, yesterday in uh, the Kildare Chase, and I, I thought that was I, I, I thought that was faultless. I know that there were fences uh, omitted from the race, which obviously uh, is a an irritation, but a, a necessary one. And um, I thought he was really impressive. That he beat Capadano, who's a decent horse, uh, in his own right of Willie Mullins uh, by just shy of five lengths, and they were 27 lengths clear of the third. Um, we, we had a conversation about a month ago, I think, or maybe six weeks ago, about the relative merits over fences of Bob Ollinger and Brave Man's Game. And I said at the time, I felt that if I could own one of them uh, and take them back to Forest Hill, it would be Brave Man's Game. That was because I felt a bit underwhelmed by uh, what had happened at Gorham Park. I'm not quite so sure about that now. Um, with regard to Dysart Dynamo, again, he just looks a, another hugely exciting and progressive two-mile novice hurdler for Willie Marlins, doesn't he? He absolutely smashed up that field uh, by 19 lengths. And he's now joined John Bon as the 7-2 joint second favourite for the Supreme Novices. So a few, a couple of weeks ago, I think just up around the time of the Tolworth hurdle, we were talking about uh, you know the the British domination of the supreme novices. What that actually meant was that they had the first two in the betting, and the six horses behind were all trained trained in Ireland. So um, if if that's what amounts to a, a a domination, it shows how how hard up we are these days. Um, but it, um, it it looks as though if um, if John Bon and Constitution Hill at least I've pronounced that horse's name correctly this time, um, were planning on having a party in the opener at Cheltenham on March the 15th, then uh, Dysart Dynamo is waiting outside with a couple of his mates ready to gatecrash it. Let's hope he doesn't leave cigarette burns on the carpet. Yeah, or indeed break uh, the child's swing in the garden. We've all, we, we, we've all been there uh, many years ago. Dave, when you and I last spoke on this podcast, we talked about whether Nicky Henderson should should split his novices up and whether you know we were working on the basis that if he did, Constitution Hill looked the more natural one to go up in distance and John Bond would stay. Now, 
you you wrote something in the mirror that that pricked my ears up subsequently yeah just in thursday's paper um it was interesting i i must admit you know you and i both know that 95 percent of the of the time when you ring trainers jockeys owners they they say something that you expect them to say what nikki henderson said was part of the other five percent in that he said right well splitting them up is up for discussion right that's fair enough that's that's uh you know that's that's not a bad line but the interesting thing was that he said if they were minded uh, to split them up then it would be likely that um that constitution hill I'll, I'll read you the quote it could be up for discussion uh, said the master of seven barrows um that's going to be up to the owners. I can't believe Constitution isn't a two-miler, and I can't believe John Bon isn't. But if JP, JP McManus, uh, did decide it might be sensible to move along the other route, i.e. with John Bon, that's fine, but it depends on what the Ballymore looked like. So um, we were saying last week that, yes, if they did split up, it would be Constitution Hill who would be going up in distance. But certainly the thinking from Seven Barrows is that if there is going to be a move, the move will be with John Bon, and that depends on, or, or J.P. McManus, who paid, what, 570 grand uh, for Duvan's brother. He will have an input into that, as you would expect. But if one horse moves, it's going to be John Bon, it seems. Now, the racing and bloodstock worlds across Europe are uh, reeling from the loss of one of their most influential figures uh, at his home in France yesterday morning, David Powell. Uh, Anthony Bromley from High Flyer Bloodstock uh, is a man who counted, one of many people who counted David as a, a great friend and mentor over the years. Uh, and I know you'll, you'll be feeling his loss as keenly as anybody. Just tell me a little bit about, about David Powell and why he was so important to, to this sport. Well, he'll be primarily remembered as a bloodstock agent, I suppose, but he did so many more things in his in his life. Um, I was surprised to see he was actually 73. I didn't know he was as old as that, but he's he's um, been an amazing part of my life uh, since our paths crossed in 1995, and uh, we have been buying horses together ever since then, so 27 years, and every day I'd be speaking to him and um it's going to be quite a, a, a it's a huge loss to to myself but so much more to the whole industry because he was rather not that many people necessarily would all know him but because he was just, he was very happy to be behind the to be in the background but he was pulling all the strings he was managing so many top horses he found so many top horses for so many people the integrity and the love and passion for the sport was you know was still undimmed even when i last spoke to him going into hospital on tuesday he was still talking about so many things for the future um but he he had deteriorated very quickly in the last uh in the last couple of weeks and it was such a it's such a loss to us all and he you are, you you have been responsible for bringing some of the, the best uh, jumpers from France to England in the last couple of decades You're legendary names Corto star and masterminded and big bucks and so many more would David have been a, an integral part in in all of those transactions oh a- absolutely and he was and he would always take a step back and didn't want to be in the limelight didn't want to take any credit this that, and the other but it was him 
but you know he was the he was my man in France. He was the eyes and ears at the racetrack, and he knew all the contacts and 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 a lot of people had great respect for him in the industry. And it, you know, and, and would oh, you know, he was yeah. I mean, also my French isn't the best at speaking, so you needed someone who could actually just liaise in the natural language uh with everyone and but no his his eye for a champion was amazing and um and continued to be so and you know his management and of the bryant stable made them champion owner for or oh, at least three seasons and and a number of uh, grand stupidates to parry winners all with him at the helm um is testament to to his great ability of of, of getting the best out of everything he ever had and um and that was he managed our French uh, side of the Mania Suede team. And they did, you know, have had, had a great run over there in the last um, eight years. So he, his, what he, what he kept going, you know, he had so many things on the go, but he used to be up the earliest man I know ever getting up in the morning. He had so much work done by, by six o'clock in the morning and you, you know, you wake up and there was a heap a ream of, uh, of emails and things of thoughts that he'd done and things he'd already sorted out that morning before you even woke up. I mean, he was a great workaholic and um, just really um, passionate. He kept him going. He hasn't been very well for a couple of years, but the work, he threw himself into his work and uh, there was nothing that was, you know, there was always a solution. There was always a solution. However intricate it would be, he would find a solution to everything every problem as I say whether it was human or um, equine and obviously he leaves a, a huge legacy not only to all the people he he mentored and helped along the way but but through his through his three sons all of whom are very prominent in the industry absolutely yeah Freddie is the the, the managing director of Arcana Richard having a running a very successful um stud farm at Harris de, de Lieu de Champ, literally on the neighboring place to where David is in Normandy and, and Leo is uh, training very successfully in California, and his stepson um, Arnold Delacour is also training very well out in in, in America as well. His, his legacy will live on through through the children and the stepchildren. Well, we might be in the depths of winter and our thoughts firmly with jump racing at the moment, but it won't be long before the first two-year-olds are, are debuting. Probably only what are we six, eight weeks away. And with that in mind, it's worth checking in with our friends at Fitzdares to have a look at their annual leading first season sire market. Cutai Glory got the better of a protracted tussle, first with Ardad and then with Caravaggio to take the title on number of winners last year. And that's how that's how it's judged for the purposes of this market. Sam Hocknell from Fitzdares joins me now. Sam, you must particularly enjoy pricing this up. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's something very different to what we do. Uh, for the rest of the year and uh, it always seems to attract quite a lot of interest um, in the racing world so yeah it's uh, quite exciting to to get it up and get it ready for this year. How did it pan out last year relative to the expectations of your market at the corresponding time? Uh, Very similar to to how we probably it was really competitive last year Um, Cotai Glory, Profitable, Caravaggio all similar prices at the top of the market and um, we found it hard to split them. They all had a very similar amount of um, foals on the ground. And it, it sort of proved that way it, how it panned out. You know, it was really competitive. It was four horses getting over 20 individual winners themselves. So so it was a, yeah, a very uh, competitive one last year. 
Now, you've priced this up as though it's not that competitive this time. Just tell me about how you've compiled this market and what, what metrics you've used to, to, to judge it. Yeah, so um, first thing we always look at is um, we um, have a look at the return of mares and we're just finding out how many, uh, how many foals they've all got on the ground just, as a, just to start with. Um, and this year is a, a real golf. Um, Sioux Nation was 158 and then a gap to... A gap down to well, it was Cracksman with the second most at 119, and then Havana Gray with 113. So, so as um, once we're looking at that, you know, it's a, a fair chance that that just the, the sheer volume here is gonna is gonna play the biggest factor in how we price this up. And I'm guessing you're thinking, well, because Sioux Nation was a Royal Ascot winning two-year-old, he's a big, powerful horse by Scat Daddy or from that sire line, that he's just gonna have tons of two-year-olds running in Cracksman big powerful horse but you know later developing horse dual champion stakes winner he's not going to have that many two-year-olds doesn't always work out like that though does it no no not at all but i'm in this case you know you've got a horse probably four runs before he got to ascot and one who didn't turn up till october um maybe he probably would attract some some sharper mares himself cracksman but just just the sort of percent of horses he's going to get running as a two-year-old he's probably think sue nation he's going to be talking sort of 50 percent um of the sort of foals here we're talking might might be seeing the track maybe 60 but maybe cracks when you're talking just sort of 20 percent and then and then just the numbers there he's, he's going to struggle to get to get anywhere near him so two's on sue nation to to be leading first season sign numerically nine to four havana gray six to one saxon warrior and ten to one and, and bigger the rest where would your money be going sam you're pretty pretty well versed in this you're you're steeped in the breeding business if you were going to have a bet here where, where would your money be going uh well i've sort of had a good look at it and i, I keep sort of thinking that it it might even be that two on is is a bit big about the favorite um if you look at the years sort of years gone by you're only needing about 25 individual winners um and 158 foals if sort of 50 percent are turning up and he you know on average these sort of these sorts of talking sort of 30 percent winners to run is he, he's coming out he's coming out right on that sort of number so it might just be that two on is is a bit big and he's he's sort of home and host already i don't i don't know we'll find out it would talk us take a sort of uh no nay never sort of horse to 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 beat him where they're going to need sort of 50 percent winners to runners to really to really sort of get past him i think this year so it's going to need something exceptional a horse to really step forward out of the ordinary yeah yeah i mean it's, it's been possible we saw memas i mean he, he won by miles but he, his his uh winners to runners was was absurd as well just he i mean he had a, so many foals but he still i think he produced over maybe 40 winners so we know that horses can can get these sort of winners to runners right up at, towards above 50 percent and i think you know, Havana Gray will probably need something like that to, to get there. Not not say it's not possible, but yeah, I think maybe two on might be might be big about the favourite. Thanks to Sam and to Anthony, to Nikki Henderson earlier in the programme, and David Yates is still with me and he has a tip for you for today. I do. It's in the 5.30 race at Wolverhampton, and it's Patsy Fagan. Uh, snooker fans of the 70s and 80s will know that name. Of course, the London-based Irishman, who was once number 11 in the world. Patsy Fagan, the horse, uh, won in style over six furlongs at Silver last time, is up in the weights, but I hope can keep ahead of his BHA nemesis. 5.30 race at Wolverhampton, selection number two, Patsy Fagan.
Dave, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back to do it all again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.